Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And then he made it more personal. Who do you say that I am? This is the fundamental question. And there are a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is, but there's only one right answer. And that's today on Walk in Truth Radio. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. We are in Mark chapter 8, the Messiah, his mission, and my response. Mark 8, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 38. Well, where we left off last time is we ended the last... uh, session together, the last time together, with this particular story. Let's just, for the sake of time, pick it up in verse 23. Taking the blind man by the hand, Jesus brought him out, Mark 8, 23. He brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I and seeing them like trees walking about. Then again, Jesus laid his hands upon his eyes and he looked intently and he and was restored. And he began to see everything clearly. That miracle and the placement of that miracle has many levels. It's not just about a physical healing. It's about seeing everything clearly in a spiritual sense. And the Lord had been working on the disciples and other people who were in the group and were following, and he was trying to open their eyes to who he was. He's done two feeding miracles. He's done incredible healing miracles. And we're told in Mark 6, 52, that the apostles still had a hardened heart. They still didn't understand everything. And the healing of this particular man is going to look back and look forward to what's ahead of us because Jesus is about to ask the question of all questions. Who do you say that I am? We must link the story or the healing that comes just before this that the man began to see everything clearly. If you want to put an ellipsis on that, just kind of go dot, dot, dot. And now Jesus is going to ask, are you seeing everything clearly now, boys? Do you see who I am? And by extension, he's going to ask the readers of the Gospel of Mark, and that includes us, are you seeing everything clearly? Are you seeing who this one is who came to this planet to save us? I hope that that's the case for all of us. And of course, I think it's true that our eyes kind of open little by little on the Christian journey to many spiritual truths. There's many things that you begin to see in the light of the Bible, in the light of God's person and character. And it is true that some change happens little by little. It's kind of like if you have one of those lights that you can kind of turn on slowly. You know, it doesn't always, it's not always the best idea to, with a light, right? Although with teenagers, that works very effectively. But it does seem like we have eye-opening little by little. But this particular question that we're going to look at this morning, we can't get wrong. If you were going to boil 
you know, any discussion you have with a person about spiritual things, they have to know this, you have to know this, I have to know it. Who is God and how do you get saved? If you're having any spiritual discussion with anybody, whether a person in a world religion or a cult, boil your conversation down to those two simple things. Who is God? How do you get saved? After all, if you don't have that right, nothing else really matters, right? So let's pick up the story in verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples, Mark 8, 27, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? Now, I think Sumi's back there on the slides, and I want to show you, Sumi, if you take us to that first slide, I want to show you just kind of the area that Jesus is traveling in. So uh, right here is where Jesus did most of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. We've been talking about that area quite a bit. If you go up the Jordan River and you follow it up here, here's where the tribe of Dan landed. This is kind of the northernmost border for Israel. And here is Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus would have traveled from the area of the Sea of Galilee some 20 miles north up to the border of Israel. And this is the location that he's in. Would you go, Sumi, to the next slide? I want to show you kind of what this area looks like. This is the northern part of Israel. And just a side note, we, are, we have set a date for those of you who want to go to Israel. We're going in the spring of 2018. So mark your calendars for that, yeah? And if you want to go, we do have spots open. And it will cost about $4,000 per person. So you have about 18 months to save money. So this would be a trip I would highly recommend. I have walked these areas, and uh, so this is, this is the great fertility area of Caesarea Philippi. As you, uh, you can see all the greenery, and this is kind of the water source that feeds down into the Jordan River, so everything kind of starts up here. This, this flows down from a place called Mount Hermon, which is in the northern part of the uh, country of Israel. What you see here is an area that was very known for worship. Assume me go to the next slide if you would. And as you get a little closer up, you can see these niches. And they found coins in this time. And the coins depict that they had figurines in these niches. The figurines were of these so-called beings or gods or goddesses that were supposed to inhabit this area. And on the coins, they had these different figurines. One was the god, small g, called Dan, or I'm, I'm sorry, Pan. Uh, there was a, his, his consort that was supposed to be in here, and kind of, you know, a different uh, pantheon of different gods and goddesses. Uh, go on to the next one, if you would, sue me. And so as you get closer up to these niches, these were known as gates, and in this cave area, they said that the god uh, Pan was born in the cave. And so people used to take offerings and they would put them into the cave. And this became a place of worship in the pagan world, but it became a very abominable place because they built a couple of temples here. And what would happen is all manner of evil and wicked type of uh, pagan practices would occur here. And so people would, would kind of uh, do their worship to this god called Pan. Go on to the next one, Sumi. 
This is what the God Pan looked like. And if you look at his picture, he is a half goat, half man, uh, a God with a small g. He's a Greek God, and uh, if you begin to look at him, you can see that he's got horns coming out of his head. He's kind of a frightening, wicked-looking creature. And, uh, you know, if you begin to look at his picture, he kind of looks like a caricature of somebody else that we know who, who, uh, you know, took on a caricature over the years. We know that that doesn't represent Satan. Satan doesn't have horns coming out of his head and a pitchfork and doesn't wear a red union suit just so you guys know. That's a caricature that developed over, year, over the years. Satan is a fallen angel. But this is an interesting thing to think about, just to see this picture of this particular false god and see kind of how he looks. Let's go to the next picture. So what happened is this is an artist's rendering of this particular area. This is called the Rock of the Gods. You can see the niches in the, in the area, and they were all over the place. You can see the ones that we've looked at here. And a couple of temples were built here, and so the people would come and they would begin to do their idol worship in this area. I'm gonna leave that picture up for a second. And I just wanna remind you that when you see something in your Bible, like Jesus took his followers to the area of Caesarea Philippi, now you can see what the area was. And a question that a student of the Bible should be asking when you read something like that is, why did he go here? Why would he travel up north to this farthest region that he could go? Why this area? Why does he go here to ask this question? And some scholars have said that this is like the center of Mark's gospel. Everything else will now lead towards Jerusalem. Everything else will lead towards the cross. This is kind of, if you will, maybe not the final exam, but one of the final, final exams because Jesus is getting ready to die. And he wants to make sure that the people to whom he's going to hand the gospel off or the baton of the gospel know who he is. They understand the message of the gospel and they understand what he has come to do. And he has taken them to this particular area to make a very clear statement. And his statement is going to come out in the following verses. But the first question he asks is, what are the crowds saying about me? What do the people think? Jesus was interested to know what the opinions are. And you know the opinions on Jesus are all over the board. You can find in world religions and cults and the occult, there's a Jesus, quote unquote, in every world religion, in every cult, even in witchcraft, they have a Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11 says that you can have the wrong Jesus, though, and the wrong gospel, and you can be wrong enough to lose your soul. There is another Jesus, 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, and another gospel. In fact, Jesus was a very common name in the first century. And so, which Jesus do you have? Do you have the Jesus of the Bible? A lot of people are comfortable with the Jesus that they create in their own minds. I like the Jesus who said this and did this, but I don't like the Jesus who says I'm the only way to God. That sounds a little too narrow. Well, you can't pick and choose, folks, what you're gonna believe about what he said. This is not a smorgasbord as much as I like that. Or to use the frozen yogurt illustration, you can't put your little sprinkles on there and say, well, I don't like that. You gotta take it all. You gotta believe that what the Bible says about Jesus in every place 
is what he said. This is what the testimony is. Do you want to be able to defend your faith, what you believe in, why you believe it? We've tackled subjects like Jehovah's Witnesses, the origins of Christmas. In honor of the 500th year of the Reformation, we did a two-part message on sola scriptura. Is the Bible alone sufficient? Is it our highest authority? Scientology, intriguing topics that are available on the Walk in Truth store at walkintruth.com. There'll be more to come, more exciting things to come. Now, there's an insight from Luke's gospel. I just want to show you really quick. Just turn to the right. It's the next book, Luke 9. There's a couple of parallel accounts, one in Luke, one in Matthew, of this particular interaction. I want to show you something that Jesus was doing that we don't always think about in this setting. So uh, here's what it says. Luke 9 I want you to see in Luke's gospel, it follows after they picked up the 12 baskets, Luke 9, 17. Look at verse 18. And it came about that while he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he questioned them saying, who do the multitudes say that I am? I want you to notice that Luke says, Jesus was praying right before he asked this question. What do you think he was praying about? I would venture to say, and I think that this is a reasonable conclusion, that he was praying that their eyes would be opened and they would see everything clearly. He's about to drop the question of all questions, and I would say to you, an application for us as Christians, if you turn back to Mark chapter eight, is that when we're about to talk to someone about Jesus Christ, it would be good if we pray. Because when we pray, heaven is enlisted. And there's an old saying in evangelism, talk to God about people and then talk to people about God. Talk to God about people and then talk to people about God. We are in a spiritual battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. You have a family member who doesn't know Jesus. You are about to witness to somebody. It doesn't have to be a long prayer, but ask for the Lord's favor. Ask for the Lord to open that person's eyes. We do have a spiritual battle. We must recognize that battle. And it interests me that the Son of God was praying before he asked this question of the disciples. Who do people say that I am? Who, what is the latest talk of uh, the groups that are out there? And they responded, look at Mark 828, they told him, saying, John the, Pap John the Baptist, that's what Herod believed. Herod believed that Jesus was John the Baptist who had returned from the dead, and Herod was freaked out. Others say that you're Elijah, and others are saying that you're one of the prophets. Another gospel says they believe you're Jeremiah. There was a rabbinic teaching that said that Jeremiah was involved with the Ark of the Covenant in some way. And that when the Messiah would come, Jeremiah would appear and in some way bring the ark back out of hiding. Malachi 4, uh, verse 5 says that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And when in Matthew 17, the apostles ask him after the Mount of Transfiguration, which is going to come on the heels of this text, well, for a future message, they say, why do the rabbis, why do the teachers say Elijah must come first? Because they had seen Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, so they asked the natural question, I thought he was supposed to come before the Messiah comes. 
And Jesus says, oh, I tell you, Elijah has come, and they didn't believe, but Elijah is coming. And students of the scripture say, what? But the scripture goes on to say that they understood that Jesus was speaking of John the Baptist. Here's how it works. John the Baptist was the first coming of Elijah, if you will, to precede the first coming of Jesus, the Messiah. The literal Elijah is coming before the second coming of Jesus. So John the Baptist was an Elijah-type figure. He's tied to Elijah in Luke 1.17 and other places. And uh, he preceded the first coming of Jesus. Remember, John was born just about six months before Jesus. And the Bible tells us that the literal Elijah is coming before the second coming of Jesus, according to Malachi chapter 4. And so this is what's going on. Jesus is asking the question, who do people say that I am? This area of Caesarea Philippi is named for the Caesar. You could say it this way, Caesarea Philippi. And it was the area of Herod Philip, and that, this is where he had his headquarters. And Augustus had given him the region, and so he had built a temple to the, to the emperor. And oftentimes in the ancient world, they would even worship the emperor as a god. And so this is what was going on. This is why this area is called what it is. And I've shown you some pictures of it, and I'll show you a couple more in a second. So here's Jesus at this particular area, and he is looking up to an area where the god Pan, the half man, half goat, uh, dwells or supposed to have dwelled. His name Pan uh, has the idea of panic. He's often displayed as playing a flute. The city uh, came to be known as Panias or Panias. A corrupted Arabic rendering now has it as Banyas or Banias. He's this grotesque half man, half goat deity, the goat of the, excuse me, the god of shepherds, mountains, forests, and wild animals. He chased women and nymphs and tried to lure them by playing his flute, including the nymph Echo, who rejected him. As Pan chased her, she fell off a cliff, and her repeated cries echoed as she plunged down the precipice. So this is how this all ties together. And so this is what this, this God did. And, and uh, Ray Vanderlaan has a series of videos that was put out by Focus on the Family. And he says, if you go further back from the Roman and Greek time back into the Old Testament era, this area was dedicated to Baal, the God Baal. And it may have been known as Baal Hermon, connected to the region of the Mount, Mount Hermon. And all kinds of terrible idolatry and paganism went on here, including the possibility that right here people were sacrificing their children to the God. So blood would be shed. Sexual immoral, immorality would be going on. And Jesus goes to this place and he asks this question of his disciples. Okay, people are saying I'm... John the Baptist, others are saying Elijah or one of the prophets, pick up the story in Mark 8. Look at verse uh, 29. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, thou art the Christ. Every person who comes along and has any interaction with the Bible 
has to see this question for us. Who do you say that I am? Are you seeing everything clearly? This is a personal question. This is why Jesus asked it this way. If the question didn't matter, he wouldn't have asked it. You have to answer the question for yourself. Nobody else can answer it for you. You must answer the question, who do you say that he is? Will you go with the Time Magazine articles, with the so-called experts on the History Channel? Or will you go with the word of God? Will you go with what Jesus said about himself? Peter's about to give this tremendous response. There's a fuller treatment of it in Matthew, which is just one gospel back, Matthew 16. Let's turn there together. Matthew 16, 13, Jesus takes them to the area of Caesarea Philippi, as we've already looked about, we've looked at. He asked them, Who do people say the Son of Man is? The response, some say John the Baptist, Matthew 16, 14. Others, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Everybody see the word the Christ there in verse 16, Matthew 16, 16. The Christ is Christos in Greek. It's the Hebrew uh, Messiah. So when you hear Christ, that's that's the Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah. Was Jesus ever called the Messiah in the New Testament? Yes, in John 1, uh, some of the early disciples say, come, we have found the Messiah. The woman at the well says, I know when Messiah comes, he will He will show us all things. He will teach us all things. And Jesus said, I am who, the one who is before you am he. Did Jesus ever say he's the Messiah? I don't know, did he? Yeah, he did. He said, the one standing before you, that's who I am. I'm the Christ. Greek Christ, Hebrew Messiah. What what does it mean when we say Messiah? We're talking about the anointed one. When you think of the word Messiah or the word Christ, it means literally the anointed one. Jesus is his name. His name means Yeshua is salvation or simply put Jesus or Yeshua means salvation. So every time Mary called him, Jesus, come for dinner, she was saying, my salvation, come to dinner. That's what his name means. Christ is not his last name. Just so you know. Christ is his title. He is Jesus, the Messiah. Everybody with me? He is Jesus, the Christ. Now think of it this way. His name means salvation. Christ means the anointed one. Link them together. What was he anointed to do? He's anointed to save you. In the Old Testament, what they would do is they would anoint kings and priests. And you can see this in the life of Saul, the life of David. You can see this in the book of Exodus with the the priest. And they would take the oil, and it was the oil of consecration. It was a way of setting one apart for a specific task that God had given to them. If you were anointed as the king, obviously you were set aside to rule. 
If you were anointed as a priest, you were set aside to be a go-between between God and the people. Jesus is the anointed one and his specific mission, what he was consecrated, anointed to do, was to save you and me. He is Jesus, salvation, anointed to save. That's why he came. And people will say, well, I think Jesus came to show people good morals. Oh, he did do that. I think Jesus came to be a way shower. Oh, he did do that. But the specific reason Jesus came is in his name. He came to save you. That's what he was anointed to do. And the Holy Spirit came upon him, Acts 10, 38, and Peter says in the house of Cornelius, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, Acts 10, 38, and he went around doing good, and Peter preached the gospel to the house of Cornelius, and the Gentiles came to Christ and were baptized and were saved. And Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? Look at verse uh, 16, Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hey, if you've been listening to these radio messages and you've opened your heart to Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you may be asking the question, what do I do now? Let me give you four things really quick of what to do after you become a Christian. Number one is read your Bible. You know, the Bible is like spiritual nourishment for your soul. It's spiritual food for the inner man. So think of your Bible as food for the soul. Get into your Bible and get your Bible into you. Open it up and read it for yourself. Number two, find a good, healthy Bible teaching church. You know, it's not enough for a church to say they're Bible believing. Make sure that they're Bible teaching and make sure that they teach in an expository fashion, going through passages and explaining the meaning of the text. Number three is to pray. You know, prayer is really a two-way communication with you and God. Pray with an open Bible. Keep your heart open. The Lord will speak to you primarily through the scriptures, but he can also speak to your heart and show you what to do. And number four is share your faith with others. Tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ that you have embraced personally in your life. Tell them about how you've been born again to a living hope in Christ. That will give them the opportunity to meet Jesus Christ themselves. And it will also keep you accountable to this new life that you have in Christ. If we can be of help in any way, we'd like to know. We'd like to know if you made a decision to follow Christ and if you're looking for a church to plug into. If you have questions, if you are looking for a healthy church, if we can help you in any way, Hey folks, it's Pastor Michael. I want to tell you about our store at walkintruth.com. If you click on the store, we have a number of products up there. They're teaching products, DVDs, CDs, books that are available, all to help your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you purchase a product at our store at walkintruth.com, you help us pay for radio airtime and you partner with us and it's a blessing in both directions. So check it out today. Go to the store, walkintruth.com. Click on it. Click on the store. You'll see a number of different products. That's walkintruth.com. Click on the store today and it'll be a blessing to you. God bless you and we'll catch you next time on the broadcast. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message in its entirety, or if you'd like to visit our church here in Corona, California, visit our website, walkintruth.com.